one day we just said, why is there no representation when Melbourne had, I think, the largest number of Sri Lankans outside of the country? And we had only seen it represented, I guess, in one type of way. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking cafe culture and Sri Lankan food. Our guest today is Nerissa Jayasinghe. She, along with Hiran Kroon, owns Lankan Tucker, a Sri Lankan uh, skewing cafe in Brunswick West in Melbourne. I love this place. Uh, I love the really cool drinks, like an iced dirty Milo. And I love the food uh, with uh, breakfast or brunch with Sri Lankan flavors. I also love the Sri Lankan style lasagna, which we have to talk about. We'll get to everything, Nerissa. Welcome to Daddy Linen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's really good to have you on the show. Um, I've given my impressions of Lankan Tucker, but you're there every day. So tell people what they need to know about the place. Uh, Lankan Tucker was uh, started to kind of give a new life to Sri Lankan food and show people showcase to people that aren't Sri Lankan um, the variety um, in the food and culture that maybe they weren't aware of. So that's how we sort of um, were motivated to start it, just to sort of bring a new life and a new generation awareness to the culture. And what do you think people thought Sri Lankan food was before you started showing them that it could be different? Uh, rice and curry and just really spicy. <laughs> Everything's really spicy. <laughs> <laughs> right. And what sort of subtleties are you showing people? Oh, gosh. Uh, firstly, I think a majority of the food's vegan, so that's kind of a really big tick in our location because we're in Brunswick West uh, and people just just didn't realise naturally the food's like that. Uh, and then just the variety of like rotis, um, noodles, sambals, and kind of a lighter uh, version of curries. Uh, you, there's an array of a menu there that we kind of put on our cafe list so that people can go, oh, wow, there's way more than rice and curry here and it's definitely not spicy. Yeah, interesting. I think one of the favourite, my favourite ingredients, like full stop, in the whole world is curry leaves, um, which I know feature a lot in Sri Lankan food. And they do have that beautiful aromatic depth and lift to them. But yeah, it's, as you say, um, they're a key ingredient, but they're not spicy as such. Exactly. And they give enough flavour along with all the other spices that when you do, we do have a bit of, we have chilli in the dishes, but it's not going to blow your head off. And then you can kind of get a nice um, meal and enhance all those flavours kind of like you go, wow, like that's really different to what I thought it might be. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, there are, you know, classic Aussie brunch um, elements to the menu as well. Tell me about the balance of that and, you know, are we allowed to use the the F word, fusion? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I love that you said skewing before because that was like made me really happy. Fusion just kind of feels like super 90s for some reason. I just feel like it's just feels dated. I don't know why, but we still get people calling us a fusion place, which is fine. but for us, 90% of the work really goes into, like, that menu. So the time it takes us to balance the Melbourne-style brunch uh, with the Sri Lankan is actually takes a, us a lot of time. Um, and I think it's something that people maybe didn't realise when they first met us, but then customers that return really understand, I guess, the concept and um, 
that is a lot of work because we have to sort of see what's going on in Melbourne, what's popular, uh, what's trending, and then also keep our flavour traditional but then modernise it in some way. So there's a few different elements there that come into play but it does take us a lot of time to put that menu together. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um as you say that, because there are so many different strands that you're sort of plaiting together. And of course, it has to make sense on the plate and in the tummy. Um, it can't just be this sort of theoretical, um, yeah, weaving together. It has to just basically be delicious and appealing. So, I mean, what is an example of one of these dishes that draws all these things together? Uh, so, for instance, I guess one of the most popular known in Melbourne is the Kotharadi, which is a Sri Lankan street food super easy to eat um, and really hearty and filling and it's just very theatrical. So we used to do it at markets and then it's probably our biggest seller at the cafe. Just ruddy bread, some curry, veggies and it's all stir-fried. So the all the flavour comes from that curry base and how long that curry takes to make. So the rest of the stuff just gets thrown in at the end and then it gets tossed together. So for us that's a really cool thing to bring because not a lot of cafes would serve that. And um, it could be paired with something like a hip hopper, which is not a traditional dish, but it has all the traditional elements. We've just plated it more like a tasting plate. So if you're a first timer, it's a great way to suggest trying a few different things. And most people that are familiar with Sri Lankan food, they know hoppers straight off the bat. So having a hopper on that dish is an easy way to sort of grab someone's attention and then get them to try a whole bunch of things on one plate. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I mean, I know that hoppers, I mean, some Sri Lankan restaurants do them, but perhaps they only do them once a week or something because they actually are quite labour intensive. It's it's pretty special that you can come any day and get one at Lankan Tucker. Yeah, I think we definitely wanted to have a dish with it. Again, like what you said, it's super labour intensive and we don't have enough burners or space to provide like a bulk version of that, which most older, um, you know, Sri Lankan eateries that are a bit more old school that provide buffets and things like that with hoppers. But we just aren't able to do that with such a vast menu. So introducing a dish that has a tasting plate with the hopper featured, it was a great way to sort of get people to try it and pull people in that were familiar with it. And for people who've never had a hopper but obviously need to have one now, just explain what it is. <laughs> uh, just a fermented rice flour batter um, and it ferments overnight and it is in the shape of a bowl, very crispy sort of uh, texture and in the middle it's quite soft. So you can have it with an egg or you just have it plain and it's gluten-free, it's vegan and it's great because you can – Use it like you would use roti. You kind of rip some off, dip it in gravy and a little sambal. You really don't need much more than that to have enjoy it, you know, have it all together. Love it. And I just want to backtrack a little bit to kochu roti because you mentioned that it's theatrical. So for, pa- for, for people who haven't had the pleasure of seeing kochu roti made in front of them, can you explain what makes it theatrical? Sure. Um, in Sri Lanka, if you go, it's a street food. So generally there's someone on the side of in front of their shop uh, banging away sort of these metal plates and um, that's how they slice the ruddy. So whether or not they throw the ruddy on already sliced or they slice it on the hot plate, it sort of um, is to the tune of maybe some music playing in the background. So they kind of chop away, throwing everything on the hot plate and then use those blades to sort of 
toss it all together and we did it at um, a lot of markets and festivals when we first started because it really drew people in, especially when you have the music going as well. Um, and the cooks were a bit theatrical too. So that's how it all gets, you know, kind of a bit of a show, I guess. That's how it kind of all comes together. Yeah, I love it. Musical and delicious as well. Um, so let's go all the way back, Nerissa, and tell me about Auntie Pam and Uncle Alan. Uh, so they started Curry Bowl in the 90s. Uh, I was quite young and I did work for them later on when they had other businesses. But my first memory is the tiniest little spot on Elizabeth Street where Emporium is now, lying out the door serving, you know, $10 lunch packs in the tiniest kitchen you could imagine. Um, Auntie Pam made all the food from scratch and um, my Uncle Alan was front of house. So, yeah, it was honestly like probably like a three by three, like it was tiny, but it was probably, it was, I know, one of the first in the CBD to serve Sri Lankan food. There's probably one or two others maybe just starting or doing it as well, but they definitely um, created a buzz. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an amazing heritage. Um, but you didn't go directly, uh, you didn't follow in their footsteps directly. Like tell us a bit about your journey um, and what you did before you started Lankan Tucker. Uh, hos- hospitality was uh, probably in the last 10 years, so prior to that, I was completely uh, in the sort of music theatre world, <laughs> so very, very different but still dealing with people. I was a talent agent for a while and studied musical theatre, so I always wanted to go into sort of management or backstage role doing that, uh, which I did for a while. Lunkin Tucker became a side hustle <laughs> and it grew over time and it sort of started to take over our lives. So as it grew... I decided to kind of give that away and then we've just focused on the business. So, yeah, very different worlds but surprisingly a lot of things I've taken from what I did as a talent agent because I deal with people every day at work. So um, it kind of works well together. That's so interesting. So is that, is that in terms of what, like reading people, sort of working out what they want, where they're coming from? Correct, yeah, because as a talent agent you really – you're like their best friend, you're a counsellor, you need to know you're sort of serving them up these different jobs. And, yeah, as when we serve people every day at the cafe or we're dealing with catering clients or whatever it may be, we have to read people, we have to look after them. So, yeah, all the skills I learnt doing that transfer to hospitality quite easily and, yeah, it works really well. And what about with your staff? I imagine some of those skills must come into play. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, and being in Brunswick West, we have a lot of uh, theatre people around as well. So, yeah, the staff are great. I'm able to manage them in a way um, where everyone gets along. We're a very small team, so um, it's important that everyone's needs are sort of met and we, yeah, all get along really well. But, yeah, all those skills I, I developed doing talent agent stuff was really helpful when I started this business. What was it that made you want to start presenting Sri Lankan food in, in the way that you do? Was it was it because you saw an opportunity in a business sense or was it out of a frustration that the food that you understood so well wasn't getting to a wider audience? A little bit of both. I think for us, we were foodies, so we've had different jobs, but go to a lot of food events, new people in hospitality and then one day we just said, why is there 
no representation when Melbourne had, I think, the largest number of Sri Lankans outside of the country. And we had only seen it represented, I guess, in one type of way. So we would, as foodies, we would go to like the noodle market or, you know, all the great events Melbourne has to offer. And we were like, oh, it's Asian, but there's no Sri Lankan. And it kind of just became just a point of conversation for us. And that's how we decided to try it, I guess. So we actually tried it by doing lunch deliveries um, to some offices and things first to see if that food was still relevant and people enjoyed it before we went, I guess, the next step of setting up to do markets and events and things. So that was the biggest conversation we had about a gap in the market, especially when you went to like an Asian festival or an Asian market. Um, it would never be covered. So we're like, that's interesting. Why hasn't someone done this? Um, and the other thing was, yeah, our generation growing up, born here, being born here, we were like, oh, that's weird. No, all the Sri Lankan people born here kind of, not that they're hiding it, but no one really spoke about it or I guess the community was just they're kind of in one area in Melbourne. So if you lived on another side of Melbourne or a different area where there weren't many Sri Lankans, you never really spoke about the food or what you ate or <laughs> you just acclimatised uh, to sort of what everyone else did and spoke about. So they're the kind of two things I would say that spurred us to do this. Wow, it's so interesting. And what's the journey been like for you to, I guess, put yourself on the line in this way, both within the Sri Lankan community and more broadly in, I guess, the hospitality and, and neighbourhood? Uh, I mean, it's been really hard. I would say the first few years were definitely a slog, especially where we set up to open it. It was a very um, slow burn because we are there trying to, I guess, bring something very new to an area that was not familiar with it at all. Um, so, yeah, it was, I would say it was very hard at the start um, and also trying to, yeah, introduce this new concept to everyone that's sort of from Melbourne that's like, oh, okay, so we only know Sri Lankan food one way, maybe like as a buffet or in the Bay Marie's at shops, but I've never seen it like on the plate like this. So it took probably, I'd say, than your, more than your regular cafe owner. Um, it took us and myself a lot of time to spend with customers, talk to them, probably spend a bit more time than I would take in just, you know, an Avo smash. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> And what were some of the moments along the way where you felt like, okay, we're getting there, we're getting through? Is it like the first time a tradie came back for a pan roll? Like what were some of the breakthroughs? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, I think it was, I can't remember the actual timing, but around probably after two years after we opened Lonely Planet, like Sri Lanka was like number one on the Lonely Planet list. And we went from people not knowing anything about the food to just every second or third customer saying, oh, I'm going over there because Lonely Planet advertised it. I'm going surfing over there and then coming back and going, oh, like I know what string hoppers are or I know what a fan roll is. And it was, yeah, I think a two to three year gap uh, timeline where we were like, oh, my gosh, like everyone knows about Sri Lanka now because it was just before COVID and it kind of like skyrocketed. All our customers were travelling over there and people were coming back with stories about where they went or even now they still ask us for like travel tips and things like that. So, yeah, it was a hard slog but it, it definitely took our uh, turn. 
Wow, that's really interesting. And what about within the Sri Lankan community? You know, did people travel to to find you to look at this? <laughs> what's what's going on with brunch and yeah? Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a you know like uh, was a point of uh, conversation because they come to check you out, and you get a bit of both. You get some support from the community. You might get people that maybe don't understand it quite in that way, uh, but we found that a lot of the younger generation, maybe the Australian-born Sri Lankans, were bringing their parents and their families, um, which was great because that was sort of how we envisioned that to happen. Um, and then those parents would be like, oh, this is great because the flavours were still traditional, but they may not have seen it plated like that or something. But for the younger generation to bring their parents and their aunties and uncles, that's that was great. Like we could see that they were enjoying it and um, – they were proud of, you know, what we were doing. Mm, that's so beautiful. I love that. Um, so, Nerissa, you've talked a lot about, you know, that people were used to Sri Lankan food in a particular way and, and often one of the features of those buffets and one of the reasons that people go to them is that they are pretty inexpensive. Um, often it's an all-you-can-eat situation and you can just, you know, keep going back to those bamaries and fill your plate up with beautiful curries and, and rice and stews. Um, you know, we love digging into the tricky topic of pricing on this podcast, and I'd love to hear about it from your point of view. Have you, how have you approached pricing and has that been a tricky part of running your business? Um, most definitely. I think we went in from the start. Um, that's always been sort of a point of conversation for us because you can get things for very little, um, I guess it's hard to um, describe, but we had to sort of value it at its worth and also um, what a lot of, I guess, Sri Lankan people who are buying this food for maybe a little bit cheaper, maybe they don't understand, you know, the wages, the super, the tax (laughs) and all of that plus the time um, that it takes to make all of this great food that we kind of saw as maybe growing up we've seen our aunties or mums make it and it seems easy and you know, not labour intensive, but it's actually quite the opposite. Yeah, totally. I think it's putting a value on that and standing by it. I mean, it's so important, but I can understand it. It would be challenging as well. Yeah, I think um, seeing, I guess, firstly, it's not easy to find Sri Lankan chefs um, that can make all of these things, but then they're grinding the spices, they're roasting them, they're doing a variety of dishes uh, with different flavours. There's different samples. Um, string hoppers are made from scratch. Hoppers are made from scratch. So all of those things, I guess, um, uh, have never really been taken into consideration when it was easy to get that food for maybe a lower price and you don't really think about the labour behind it or the, the quality as well. Uh, we stand by, like, the quality and, I guess, over the time, we've really tried to set the bar as um, best we could about the quality of the Sri Lankan food. Mm, yeah. And, I mean, how has that been received? Has it been – have you had some tricky conversations? Um, I think, yeah, I, it's hard. I think, yeah, with people – it's not necessarily complaining as such. It's just people question or go, oh, that's – or you might get a review that says, hey, I paid $30 for this and I can get it for 20 or something like that. Um but most people are very appreciative of what they're eating and they understand. But 
yeah, I guess we have had conversations with customers before because, you know, so the time, like a pan roll, for example, just to make sense to people, it probably costs $1.50 or $2. Now is six. And the quality of the meat we use, where it comes from, the person making it, the spices, that takes so much time and so much consideration that may not be the case somewhere else. So when we explain that, it's actually always met with quite a you know positive <laughs> response, but we don't always have to explain it to that extent. But we, if anyone does ask, we sort of give them an idea of why it's priced like that and the value and the worth of the person cooking it as well, you know. And I suppose, I mean, let's also just say that a pan roll is $6 takeaway. So it's actually really, um, you know, I, I feel like shouldn't you put that, shouldn't it be like 9 or 11? Is that okay? Like is it, do you feel like you, even so we're talking about it as there's some tricky conversations, but actually is it is it still too cheap? I mean, a guy did say to me, this is just this week. He's like, whoa, that's really cheap. And I just said to him, you are the first person to ever say that to me. But uh, look, it's it is, it's probably at the right price. It could be with inflation, maybe an extra dollar. But um, for us, yeah, six is pretty good. We generally sell them like people buy them in packs of four to take home as well. So we provide them with frozen ones and cooked ones. But yeah, it's just more about knowing that where everything's come from and the consideration may put into that dish or that roll or whatever it might be. Um, I think it's people are much more aware of that now. But at the start, it was very hard because you can get you know string hoppers for ten cents a string hopper or something like that, where maybe that person's not paying um, standard wages or tax or whatever it may be. Um, and I think over time, though, people are more understanding or maybe more knowledgeable about it. Yeah. I mean, I've seen on menus recently, you know, people have been quite explicit about uh, surcharges or, you know, sorry if things take a bit longer, we we committed to giving our staff proper breaks, for example. And I think it, it is about making sure everybody's on the same page to a certain degree while not, you know, diminishing the magic of hospitality. But I think there are realities that we can all be aware of and still, you know, have a great experience. But it's interesting, yeah, looking at how different people deal with it. Yeah, and I think for so long for us doing Sri Lankan food, maybe in the 80s and 90s, it's only like maybe the southeast of Melbourne. So those suburbs, it's flooded with Sri Lankan food and it's some, most of it's great. You know, it's someone cooking it um, and there's small shops with bay-maries and small eatings. Um, so for so long, that was just the standard and the what people knew and I mean it's still there today those shops are still there there's more and more um all the time and that's great because we ourselves Haran and I love a cheap and cheerful joint um when it's great but when you come to us we've we're trying to compete and we are in the lists of you know the top 10 cafes or timeout or whatever it might be but we're competing with Melbourne brunch scene cafes which have a different type of style and standard so the quality and what we're delivering has the price has to match that. So it is very different. And I think at the start it was a lot harder for people to understand, but now it's just a given, like people get it, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting and it's a conversation you could have, you know, about lots and lots of different restaurants, cuisines, neighbourhoods. It's, you know, you, you people in 
every restaurant, including, you know, the ones that are cheaper, need to be paid properly, need to get their breaks, get all their conditions. So I, I guess it's um it's it's tricky because you, like you're drawing a line and saying, you know, this is who we are and this is what it costs. But um yeah, it's just a it's it's interesting because, you know, people have um, you know, a certain amount of money to spend on food and sometimes it's not very much. Um, so, of course, we, we want places where they can go, but then we want the people that work in those places to be looked after just as well as your staff. So, um, I feel we're not going to solve solve this in, uh, in our conversation, Erisa, but it's certainly something that I want to keep talking about, keep that conversation rolling. It's, it's so important. Yeah, I think so too. I think we are... Uh appreciate our staff we have to you know the that's what that's what people are driving an hour for that's what they come for the experience so we have to look after our workers and yeah whether it's a cheap and cheerful join or a more expensive place all the workers should be looked after the same and um some of that menu price is you know because of the hard work they're doing that's their wage um and it has to show on the plate as well or if it comes out in a little bowl whatever it is it should um it should reflect their hard work as well. So I think, yeah, it's a hard balance because things have been maybe a one way for so long and it would be great if that changes through the industry a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Nerissa, I promised at the start of this conversa- conversation that we were going to talk about your lasagna. So can you round us off with <laughs> by making me very hungry? <laughs> Yeah, we did a quite a few orders uh, before Christmas, so people knew we were closing for a few weeks. So um, the original name is the Kotu lasagna, but it's I guess you could call it as chicken curry lasagna as well. It's our staple, our most popular item, the chicken curry, through sheets of lasagna with lots of spices and vegetables and bechamel. It sounds so strange. People are like, lasagna, like Kotu lasagna. But once you have it, <laughs> then it all makes sense. So we do them by the tray um, and then it'll be probably featured back on our winter menu later this year. But it is really popular. <laughs> Great and very delicious. Um, Marissa, thank you so much for chatting to us about Lank and Tucker. Um, yeah, so great to get your story and your perspective on all kinds of things. Really appreciate you sparing the time for us today. Yeah, I really um, had a great time. Thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.